You're listening to the Ascent Archive, a podcast of oral histories with rock climbers collected by the University of Utah and produced by the J. Willard Marriott Library. I'm Tali Kasuchi, librarian, rock climber, and oral historian. And I'm Rachel Whitman, and I'm also a librarian. For decades, memory workers, including historians, librarians, and archivists, have conducted oral histories to document life experiences of notable groups of people. These oral history transcripts, and sometimes their accompanying audio and video, are kept in the archives of libraries and museums around the world with varying degrees of access. This podcast, focusing on interviews with rock climbers, is an innovative approach to make oral histories more accessible and easier to listen to on the go or at faster speeds. The Ascent Archive podcast features oral histories that I conducted for the Rock Climbers Oral History Project and others from the American West Center's Ever El Cooley Oral History Project. To find out more about these collections, visit the Ascent Archive website, which is included in the show description. You're about to hear an oral history that is unedited. Please excuse possible interruptions, sound quality issues, potentially outdated or offensive terminology, and the occasional curse word. In this episode, you'll hear from Ted Wilson. Ted was interviewed by Matt Driscoll in 2011. Ted is best known for being mayor of Salt Lake City, a member of the Alpenbach Climbing Club, and involved in multiple rescues, including on the north face of the Grand Teton. Hope you enjoy. Okay, today is June 2nd, 2011. I'm Matt Driscoll speaking with Ted Wilson. And to begin with, Ted, can you tell me when and where you were born? Uh, I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, the old St. Mark's Hospital on Beck Street, which has been closed almost as long as I've been around. And uh, I was born on May 18th, 1939, even before World War II. Just before it. (laughs) And uh, could you tell me a little bit about your family background, specifically how you learned uh, to ski and um, when you began to start spending time in in the mountains? Well, I grew up in a family, lived on 20th East, 27th South, Salt Lake City. My dad was an outdoorsman. He loved to fish. He had never skied. Uh, There was a farm across the street from our house, and the farmer had, for some reason, built a hill uh, that was uh, just uh, by plowing it up. It was maybe uh, 15, 20 feet high. And my father thought it would be fun for us kids to slide down that on a pair of skis. So he bought us some skis at Christmas time. These were funny little short skis with a, with a little wooden ex- extra tip on the front and nothing to hold the foot but a strap that went over the front of the foot. And my brother and I would go over there. My father would carry us to the top and then launch us. And we, <laughs> we loved that. We thought that was really cool. And uh, so that's how I got my start. And your father and mother growing up, were they skiers? Neither were skiers. But my dad would often take us all the way to Brighton. He worked during that Saturday. And then he would come back down and run his business all day and then drive back up and get us at the end of the day. Sure. So that's a pretty dedicated dad to drive up that canyon sure. twice a day. Um, and we also went over skiing with my buddies in the neighborhood that had similar equipment and ski on the old country club golf course. Uh, there's a hill there that is now the freeway that 
was a pretty nice little hill and we'd slide down that hill. Uh, the problem with it was at the bottom you could not turn left, you could only turn right. So we got so we could turn right, but we couldn't turn right. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, a guy came over one day that we'd never met before. His name was Jan Peterson. He now owns Jan Mountain Sports up in Park City. Jan was about our age, and he could turn left. And so he was our idol for a while. <laughs> and then uh, Jan knew a guy named Kay Smith who ran the ski school at Brighton at the time. And we, got, we would pay Kay 50 cents to ride up with him on Saturday. We'd ski all day and then pay 50 cents to ride back with him. And so I started skiing at Brighton, I think, when I was about six or seven years old. Could you tell me a little bit about what it was like up at Brighton at the time? Uh, the only lift there was a funny little funky T-bar. T-bar is a lift which has a stem on it and then a horizontal piece that you put between your legs and it drags you up the hill. And it went up what is now, uh, oh golly, the lift there is... Uh, it's a smaller one, not not Mount Millicent. Mount Millicent had not yet been built. It was uh, oh, I forgot the name of the peak, but it was standard peak. Not there. majestic either. Yeah, Mount Majestic. majestic okay. Mount Maj but he only went halfway up okay. to where Mount Majestic now goes, and so that was our ski hill. And it was pretty tame, but for us at that age, six or seven years old, it was a big hill. We had a great time. We built little jumps, and we had a fantastic time at Brighton. Later on, we started going to Alta, skied on the old Collins lift when I was seven or eight, nine years old. Uh, the Collins lift was a single chair lift and only went up to where the angle station is now on the Collins lift. Uh, the Germania lift had not yet been built. That was built when I was in high school. And I did a lot of racing with a group up there. Started ski racing maybe when I was 10. Uh, raced with Alan Ingen and Jim Gaddis and some guys that became some very, very good skiers. Marv Melville became an Olympic skier. And by then, I was way into skiing. You know, once I started racing, I was into it. And what was the traffic like up, at, up in the canyon? No, there was no traffic. Uh, no, the bigger danger was you'd, you'd run out of gas and nobody would come. Right, you know? right. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sort of over-exaggerating. But, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was very uh, light, easy to park. Most of us parked right there by the Alda Lodge and then walked down to the ski lift and then took the rope toe up that's been there ever since. I think the Alda Lodge was built in 1939, the same year I was born. And so we're the same age, we're, and we're both creaky and serviceable. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned a couple of folks that you uh, skied ra ski raced with at Alta, uh, Alan Ingen and Jim Gaddis, uh, amongst others. Who were some of your early influences as a young skier? People that kind of inspired you and pushed you? Oh, yeah. Well, Al Fingen was. I mean, he was a lovable man. Mm -hmm. uh, he worried about us. He had... Keith Lang, who, by the way, still teaches up there. Hmm. He was an adult when I was young. Keith was our racing coach. Um, and uh, we just had, they they let us just have the run of the place. Uh, Keith Lang was a big, uh, Junior Benus was a ski instructor there at the time. One of the great Utah skiers of all time. Uh 
Alf's brother Corey. I didn't think I, I didn't see very much, but he came around occasionally. And uh, I think internationally, the people that I thought were cool were we got racers like Carl Schwantz from Austria. Uh, you know, I could never hope to ski like those guys, but I could sure have fun trying to do it. And how did you hear about it? people like that on the international scene that were? Well, you know, they had some great races at Alta in those days. They don't have races there anymore. But in those days, um, the Snow Cup was an international race. And Carl Schwantz actually came and skied in it one year. All the best young American skiers like Buddy Werner um, skied there. Uh, Susie Harris Ridding, who is a Utah, but was almost made the Olympics, but they found out she was pregnant just for the games, and so she went home. They wouldn't let her ski in the Olympics, and she had a child she named Jinx. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was I foreran the snow cup one day when Buddy Werner was in it, and I got to the bottom and I was going back up and I saw. Two of the great old ski patrolmen, Harold Goodrill and Jim Shane, and they yelled to me to come down the hill. I didn't know why I went down, and they were gathering all the kids up. That's the day that Jill Kinmont, who became rather famous for this, went off course and hit a tree and became paralyzed. And they wanted us to help carry the toboggan down. They didn't want to ski the toboggan down. They thought it might damage her worse. And so we wound up walking it down Shush Gully and getting her in the ambulance. Sadly, she never regained the, she was paralyzed from the waist down. But I met her later in life. She was a beautiful woman. I said, hey, I helped carry you down the mountain. And she said, give me a hug. <laughs> and I did. And do you do you remember much about that, carrying her down? Oh, yeah. What that experience was like? It was a big experience for me. I was only 10 or 12, and all the other kids would take a little shift, and we'd all walk down together, and we were being real careful with her. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a sobering day for me as a racer to see somebody get hurt that badly. But I kept racing right through high school. At what point did you start backcountry skiing? Then... Uh, we used to just take our skis. We didn't have skins. We didn't have special bindings. And we would just go hike up. We skied the Baldy Chute. When I was maybe 15, uh, by hiking all the way up Germania and then walking up the Germania Ridge to the top of Baldy and then skiing. That was considered to be a piece de resistance. If you did that, you were one of the boys, a test piece. And we did that. Uh, you know, guys that say, you skied the chute? No, I haven't. You going to do it? Yeah, so you go do it. Uh, we had a great time doing stuff like that. I'd call it backcountry, but not by today's standards, right. you know. I mean, it would be, although the chute's a pretty good run. And, and without the gear, like you said. So yeah, we didn't have the gear. We, you know, we didn't even have lift cables that came along a little later. Right. And that's where I started, and I love getting a... We used to occasionally... After the Germania lift was built, and this was in my high school years, we would traverse over and drop off the ridge between Alta and Snowbird and ski what we then called Gad Valley, which is the eastern valley of Snowbird. Mm -hmm. And it was pure powder. We ski all the way down, and a couple of our buddies, we'd trade off with them day to day. They would pick us up down there and then go home. So we do that at the end of the day, and that was kind of a backcountry thing. Uh, 
I didn't start using skins and, you know, skis with skins on them and lift cables till I was probably in my first year of college. But then I started getting all over the Wasatch Range. Mm -hmm. So you saw the changes in technology within 10 years really changed what you guys could do. Yeah. The cable binding was a big boon. And it was very simple. The old cable would hold your leg your foot all the way down because you had a little clip at the bottom that was way back. All you had to do was take the cables out of the back clip and you could get about two or three inches of heel lift. And you'd take a, a skin. Now, the skins we had were army surplus. They were made out of some kind of a plastic. They had very long hair on them. They tended to clump up and they tended, and particularly if the snow was a little warmer, they clumped up and they're really awful. Nothing like today's skins. But they worked, and we got around in the Wasatch, and we often traversed between Brighton and Alta, or back and forth, or we went up onto Wolverine and skied. We skied, uh, uh, you know, places where the lifts are now, over around, uh, over in the, the basin uh, below Devil's Castle. We skied just below Devil's Castle on the run, which now serves by a lift, and so we got a lot of places and had. Absolute powder. Of course, in those days, you got absolute powder until noon on the ski lift. Now it's gone. Ski patrol skis it out before you even get up there. Even in the backcountry, certain spots, right? See moguls in the backcountry. Right. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> uh, at that point, as you started to backcountry ski a bit, uh, did exploration in the backcountry become really important to you? It did, because um, there's always a sense of wonder. Even though you could see what it was from down below, be the first to go up there, to see it, to feel it, to ski it, was a big deal to us. And, and I think that's what led to my climbing initially, because climbing is the game of what's around the corner. You know, we all have that impulse when we're out hiking or something. We don't like to stop when there's a bend in the trail. We want to go see what's around there. And so that impulse to explore the unknown, even though it's mostly known by most people, is is really powerful. And I think all of us were sort of struck by that when we were young. Mm-hmm. And we were lucky because my generation did have some real exploring to do. Right. Now it's harder for young people because it's not quite so unknown to them. Right. Since you brought up climbing, let's talk about climbing for a couple of minutes. Um, and I guess to begin with, what was the first time you encountered climbing? Not necessarily climbing anything, but knowing about somebody climbing something and saying, oh, I kind of want to do that. Two books affected me very deeply. One was by Sir John Hunt called The Conquest of Everest, which was... I think published in 1954, right after the successful first climb of Everest by the British expedition, which was led by John Hunt, who was a British logistician. He understood how to move weight high in the pyramid that it takes. So many, it probably take 400 pounds down at base camp to get one pound to the top, and he would build a pyramid out of that, get that many people on the mountain and move everything up. Much different than now where people run up and down it like Reinhold Messer in two days, who does it in a totally different way, but that's all we had in those days. That book was very inspiring to me. The other book I checked out of the library because I had read The Conquest of Everest was a book called Starlight and Storm by a French climber named Gaston 
Rebufat, R-E-B-U-F-F-A-T, who incidentally, when I was much older, stayed at my home here in Salt Lake after I'd met him in Chamonix, France. He called and needed a place to stay. He had serious lung cancer. He had never smoked in his life. And he, one of the best experts in the country was right here at the University of Utah Hospital. He came and sp- stayed with me for a week and a half when he had treatment. So it was like having my idol come, you know. But those two books, uh, both the Hunt book, sort of a technical book, the Ravenfall book, a very inspiring book, really turned me on. And uh, But that was not my first climb. My first climb, do you want me to go into that? Yeah. Well, I was working up in Mammoth uh, as a, I just barely graduated from high school, took a job as a busboy in the Mammoth Cafeteria in Yellowstone National Park. And uh, we shared a dorm with some kind of old coots uh, who were kind of old alcoholics, I think. They just sort of worked their way around wherever they wanted to go by working in kitchens and stuff. And these were like dishwashers. But they were good guys. And we sat out on the porch one day of our dorm, and they pointed to this awful peak across the Gardner River called uh, Mount, uh, God, I forgot me. Mount Ebert, E-V-E-R, not to be confused with Everest. <laughs> E-R, E-V-E-R-T was named after a guy who was a pioneer of that country. And they said, no man could climb that face over there. And I said to him, want to bet? I never climbed, but he said, I got $20. No man can climb that face over there. Well, my buddy and I, Jim, or uh, Glenn, uh, uh, what was my buddy's name? Glenn, uh, well, forgotten his name over the years. Uh, well, Glenn and I said, we can climb that face. So the next day, we drove down to the Gardner River. We waded the river, which was horrendous, but we got across. We had old combat boots on that we'd gotten because we were involved in the National Guard at an early age, stay out of the draft. And we climbed that face. It was a dirt face. It was as hard as a rock. It was very, very dangerous. If we'd fallen off anywhere up there, it would have at least just taken all the skin off our body. We didn't know that. And when we finally got to the top of the dirt, which is about 2,000 vertical feet, there was a limestone barrier at the top, a cliff face. And we didn't know how to get up that, but we somehow found a chimney and worked our way and got to the top of it. We went over to where we could see back down to Mammoth and we could actually see the dorm. And we had stolen a sheet out of the hampers that they used over in the hotel. And we hung that sheet over the top because we knew with a pair of binoculars you could probably see it. And then we backtracked. And, you know, how we ever got down there without just killing ourselves was amazing. And we came back, crossed the river, went back, and went to the dorm, and we couldn't wait to get these two old guys out. We got them out there. We wrestled up some binoculars, and we said, take a look. Look up there. You can see our sheet. And I looked, and I could see it, and Glenn could see it, and this old codger went, I don't see no sheet up there. Do you, Bill? We never got our 20 bucks. But they, (laughs) 
I've always laughed about that because those two old coots turned me on to Craig. <laughs> you know? For me, that was worth more than 20 bucks. A lot more. And uh, there was something about that day. First of all, I realized what I'd done was crazy. So that was very good for my sense of how do I learn this sport in a way that I can stay alive. And number two, just the adrenaline of that day, just being up there, just doing what we did, kind of beyond the odds, was just amazing to me. You know, I wanted more of that. I became a, a climbing adrenaline junkie right on the spot. <laughs> and you mentioned a couple of books that had kind of been inspiring to you. Did you, at that point or shortly thereafter, come across figures that could either mentor you or kind of push you? Yes, I did. Uh, the first people I ran into, because uh, the next summer, instead of going back to Mammoth, I was, well, let me just kind of connect it. I was driving home from Mammoth that summer after I'd done that peak. By the way, the next weekend, I climbed Mount Electric, the highest peak in the Gallatin Range, uh, which is in the park and the highest peak in the park, just on my own. And there was some scrambling near the top that I went back years later and found out was reasonably serious. So I was getting the real move. And again, without a piece of gear. Yeah, just my shoes and me and a little backpack. Uh, I called my mother and I said, Mom, you know, I just... uh, uh, did something a little crazy. I climbed this peak and didn't get the 20 bucks I deserved. She said, well, I'll teach you to make a bet with a couple of old guys like that. I said, but I just found out I love climbing. She said, don't you dare do it without learning to climb. So I'd actually driven down one weekend that summer, and I'd gone into the Exum Mountain guys in the Tetons, and Glenn Exum was in there, and I said, Mr. Exum, I want to take a climbing lesson. He said, well, I'm sorry, this is mid-July. I mean, they're so busy. They have 50 guys working for them now. There's nobody there. He said, I'm sorry, son, but I don't have any guys out today. We just don't have any business. You're the only business I've got, and I can't afford to send a guy just unless you could pay a, uh, a private price. And I said, what is that, Mr. X? And he said, $20. And I said, oh, I could never do that. I think a beginning lesson was only $5. Well, I was feeling disappointed, and he was... He was such a nice guy. He was trying to figure out a way to deal with man. In walked Willie Hunsford. Willie later was the first man to climb the West Ridge on Mount Everest. And he said to Willie, he said, Willie, what are you doing? He says, oh, I don't know. He says, not much. And he says, could you take this young man over for a couple hours for five bucks? Okay. So Willie and I went across the lake. We could ride the boat. And we went to their practice area near Hidden Falls. And I had the day of my life. I did not know then Willie Unsold's stature as a mountaineer. But the guy just turned me on, you know. So now when I'm driving home later that summer, I stopped in the Tetons and I looked up and I could, I looked up on the Mount Owen and, and I looked at those snowfields and I said to myself, wow, that could be me up there. It had kind of a blue um to it in my imagination kind of a I wanted up there and uh, so the next summer I went up and went to work in the Tetons and climbed every weekend and I ran into a group of guys from Olympus High School guys like Kurt Hawkins Dick Wallen Bob Stout uh, and these guys were do you remember what summer this was this would have been the summer of 19 19- 
And uh, and did you know these guys? Never met them, but they were working there at, at Calder Bay where I worked. And we started climbing together, and we climbed together all summer, and we climbed every day off, you know. We did the Grand by getting off at 5 in the afternoon, running up the trail, camping at Pesalt's Caves at 7.30, run up to the lower saddle, go up the Grand, come back down, be to work early the next morning. I mean, we were full of energy. Uh, and we did. I did the Exum Ridge that summer. I did the Pesalt Ridge that summer. Now he's into climbing. I knew how to put a rope on and how to put in gear, Tetons in those days. Right. So that's how I got initiated in the Tetons. And Tetons really was my first inspiration. I really started climbing here after I started in the Tetons. Right. And could you talk a little bit about the community that you, you already started to mention a few of the names, uh, folks from Olympus High that gathered up there. But yeah. were these the days of the Jenny Lake climbing camp? Uh, or is Exactly. Um over in, in an old CCC camp from the Depression days, Civil uh, Civilian Conservation Corps. There was an old camp over there, and a bunch of grimy climbers from all over the country would come there every summer. We had the uh, tough guys from New York. Uh, we had uh, Yvonne Chouinard was there, who later became famous as a climber and as a businessman. Uh, we had Ken Weeks, his climbing buddy. We had Mort Hempel from Yosemite. A lot of the big names from Yosemite. Royal Robbins didn't stay there very long, but Royal came in. And I started work. you know, I started cross-connecting, going climbing with these guys. Now he's climbing with the best climbers in the country. I, w- I wasn't quite at their standard, but the fact they let me go out with them said something. Right. So... And they started talking about climbing granite. And I said, we got great granite in Utah, but it's impossible to climb. It's too smooth. And they said, I didn't climb that. Just get some gear and go out there. So Yvonne gave me a few chrome molybdenum and pecans that he had picked up from John Salafay. And I brought him back, and we started climbing on the granite. And that led to the first route I, I think, ever done in the canyon in 1960 with a couple of Yvonne Chouinard's Pitons, his forged lost arrows, and uh, and I went out there with Bob Stout, and I think we did the first route ever to be done in Salt Lake Granite. In Little Cottonwood. In Little Cottonwood, mm-hmm. yeah. And we found out you could climb the granite. And the word was out in the Alpenbach Club, which was this Olympus High group, uh, really ganged up on the Salt Lake Granite. Could you tell me a little bit about the Alpenbach Club? And one of the things I guess I'm curious about is whether there was a sort of competitive spirit in this group or, you know, what was driving people to begin to explore some of the territory in Little Cottonwood or Big Cottonwood Canyon? Presumably, most of the exploration was in Little Cottonwood at that time. I wouldn't call it competitive. It was sort of good guy competitive, maybe. You know, we climbed with each other. We climbed as various groups. We didn't seek maybe to show off or if somebody came back and said they had just gone up and done a new 5.7, we wanted to go do it, see if we could do it too. Uh, or somebody came back and said, we think that's 5.9. Yeah, we want to go do it. You know, I mean, there's a little competitiveness. We were all deeply good friends. We all also climbed in the Tetons. We also came over and climbed on the quartz side in Little Cottonwood. 
So it was an amazing organization, and into that group came an older guy, maybe 20 years older than us, named Rich Ream. He was in his 40s. We were in our late teens or early 20s, and Rich brought a certain sobriety to the crowd, even though he was the first guy to give us beer. Uh, he brought us a sense of, you got to be safe, guys. Those who are around at this point. This is a one-fall sport. He taught us really a lot about safety, belaying, putting in pitons, being careful on rappel. Uh, really, Rich's leadership was fundamental to our successes out there. Were there other mentor-like figures? You mentioned uh, previously Harold Goodrow up at Alta for skiing. Um, was he a figure at all um, that played a mentorship kind of position or likewise was Royal Robbins. Um, did he play a role like that? Yeah, I think Chenard uh, played that role with me in the Tetons, talking me into trying out the granite here. And Yvonne was so good, you know, a little guy, but he was like a spider. Uh, Harold was a great idol of mine, Harold Goodrow. Harold, it was funny because I called Harold and said, man, you got to go out on this granite with us. Harold was 25 years older than I was. He was kind of the old dean of the Wasatch. And at the time, probably the best climber in the Wasatch. I said, Harold, you got to come over with me. And he says, oh, you're a damn rock engineer. Well, I'm not going to go climb on that granite. The quartzite's too good. It's got holds on it. I'd come over and climb quartzite. And I did. Uh, and so he was a great inspiration. And then in 1964, uh, I was tending Rich's house for the summer. He was up running the Signal Mountain Lodge in the Tetons. And I got a call from one Royal Robbins, who I'd never met. Royal was in town. And of course, the tradition among climbers is you go crash at other people's houses. And he wanted to crash. And he had his lovely wife, Liz, with him. And I brought him over, and they stayed with Kathy and me. And... And he said, you want to do a climb? And I said, I got an eye on the line out in Little Cottonwood I think you'll really love. And we went out and did what was now known as Robin's Direct. It turned out the rock wasn't as good as we hoped it would be, but there's a couple of classic pitches on it. And maybe the second or maybe the first 510 in Utah we did that day. Royal led it. I followed it. Uh, Harold had done stuff. Okay, so you were talking about Rob, the Robbins direct route. Yeah, Royal and I climbed the route together, and uh, I never climbed with Royal Robbins. He was maybe the best climber in America at the time. Some may debate that, but uh, Leighton Corr was very good also. Um, but Royal, uh, we went up and did this route together, and did a pitch called the Double Cracks, which were very thin. And you get much handhold on it, and there are no footholds. It's all friction for your feet. And when we got over the, when we did it, I said to Roy, what do you think that is rated? He says, I think it's 5'9". Well, 5'9 was the highest standard then. We hadn't yet gone to 5'10". That didn't come until Chuck Pratt climbed the crack of doom in Yosemite. And I said, yeah, solid 5'9". I agreed. And then we did another pitch up on the face of the thumb itself, 
kind of a jam crack route that we also call 5.9, which was upgraded later to 5.10. But Harold Goodrow had done a, a climb called Goodrow's Wall, which is in the Storm Mountain area. <clears throat> it's a solid 10C. And I think Harold had done that long before us. So I, we didn't do the first 5.10 in Utah, but that day we did some solid 5.10. And uh, by then I was a pretty good climber. You know, I knew that I could climb at a standard uh, that Royal Robbins would climb on it, not as good as Royal, but I was, I was pretty good. And, and so that was huge for me, you know, to find out that I was maybe there with the big boys. Right. And to what do you attribute your development over the course of Just the love the sport. Yeah. Just, I never thought much about technique or anything. I just went climbing. You know, you learn the technique. It's self-instructed. Now you can go to a good climbing instructor and pick up some points. Nobody then did that sort of thing. Nobody was a climbing teacher, instructor, or guide. There were some guides up in the Tetons, but, you know, they just took you up the big mountains. They didn't really teach how to climb very much. Right. So it was all self-done. That's how we all worked in those days. And obviously at this point you're climbing uh, traditional. This is all traditional climbing, and you're placing your own gear. Could you discuss a little bit... Um, the gear that you were using? Well, originally it wasn't very good. Uh, we had, uh, I would say, my rack in 1960 consisted of two or three soft cassine pitons, three or four army angle irons, which are don't get any bigger than about a quarter of an inch, and they have a ring hanging out of them. They were known to break, by the way. Um, and that was about it. And, and and we used, we maybe had on the rack seven or eight Stubai carabiners, very heavy Austrian maids with a gate on them as sharp as a razor. If you got your finger in that gate, they just mess your finger up. Uh, and then we had a few slings we tied, uh, and that was it. And so the sport was one of runouts. Uh, you put in a piece, you try to make it solid, and then you're 30 feet. That's 60 foot fall to the next placement. So we had a, we never fell. Falling was not part of the sport. You did not fall. And so we all climbed very cautiously. We did fall. And when we did, it was like a horror story. Fortunately, none of us really got very hurt, but we had some bad falls and, and, Fortunately, the pin we had in held, but <clears throat> it wasn't until later that the gear got better and we evolved to chrome molybdenum pitons and better placements and more frequently because we now started carrying bigger racks. And we started to learn to fall occasionally and get a little more committed. And that's when our climbing went up a notch or two. But early on, we were kind of hemmed in by the danger factor. Mm -hmm. um, and what, what effect do you think that has uh learning to climb like that with uh, long runouts and uh, the potential for real harm being done and being elevated like that. Um, what effect do you think that has on the, the type of climbing that you are doing as opposed to nowadays where there's all this gear that can stop people that, that can make climbing more safer. Um, yeah. So what's the, what do you think about that? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to, <clears throat> speculate on that. I do know we were all cautious. 
I do know that I'm a cautious driver today, maybe because of that. I really realize how badly you could get hurt in an automobile accident. I'm a careful driver. I've always been a careful driver. Uh, so it had a spin off to real life. I think we learned to control ourselves, control our emotions. Uh, you don't want to quake and shake up there. You you take a couple of deep breaths when you're on the run out and you haven't got your next pin in. And you stay steady because you have to. That's been nice for me, I think, you know, being a mayor and having to go speak before people and stuff. That was a nice thing to have had in my sure. life, you know. Sure. Uh, to be involved in civic emergencies like floods, I got a pretty cool attitude toward it. Don't get too flustered. Do what you can. It may get you anyway, but you may as well die smooth than unsmooth. Yeah. I, you know, I think it was real instructive for us, and I, I wonder whether young people now have that opportunity. Listen, there's still some big runouts in climbing, and people take enormous risk and learn the same thing. But I worry about people that just go to the gyms and clip the bolts and never really have the thrill of being out there where you've got to take control of yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to encourage them to get out and enjoy right. the outdoors. Right. <laughs> right. And I guess there's a certain amount of uh, conservation of energy that has to go on um, when you do have a long run out in front of you like that, right? Where you don't want to waste all this energy, you know, on a single move holding yourself there. You want to keep on sort of moving wisely. Yeah, I think we were smooth and easy climbers because we had to be. But occasionally, one of the ways you made yourself safe was just to make a run at it, you know. Uh, you'd have to make a judgment. If you saw some good holes and you're getting tired, you'd say, I'm going to move up this very quickly. Right. And uh, we also scrambled a lot where we went unroped. And we generally went unroped right up to fifth class. And above fifth class, generally, we started protecting ourselves with the rope. And we did a lot of climbing in mountains where we'd have no protection. And uh, I wouldn't call us solar climbers in the modern sense of it. I still wonder how those guys do it. You know, these guys that go out and do these extremely hard routes without a rope. Right. And just a pair they just of, had an interesting article on that in yeah. National Geographic, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They have a pair of shoes and a chalk bag, and that's it. Right. And uh, I've always, I've done a little of that on routes that I knew well, and but never at that level. Once you had encountered gear at that point, um, we're talking the early 60s here, did you ever just climb without it? for the purpose of, you know, trying to free climb? Not really. I mean, we scrambled, but um, I don't think any of us really. Bottom fifth class was sort of where we made the transition to safety, ropes and stuff. I never really, until I was 50 years old, did any free soloing. And when I got to be 50, you know, I just got kind of a harebrained, and, and went out and, and soloed a couple of routes that I'd done. I'd soloed schoolroom. I soloed a couple of routes up in the canyon that were cracks that, you know, your relatives, you can get into a crack and stay pretty safe. I did it for a year or so, just, you know, it was fun. But then I kept saying to myself, wait a minute, you're the mayor of Salt Lake City and you're a father. What are you doing this for? You know, so I quit. Right. <laughs> Uh, so you spoke a little bit about a couple of the figures that were kind of at the forefront of the climbing scene at the time. And 
Royal Robins or locally for a little while, how good row, right? Uh, what about um, kind of as you were coming into your prime as a climber, uh, who were some of the figures that really seemed to be pushing the envelope? For example, Yvonne, you mentioned Yvonne Chouinard as immediately having some sort of influence. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk about some of those individuals? Yeah, there were locals like George Lowe, my friend from Ogden. George is an amazing mountaineer and climber. George was very inspiring to me. A young fellow that unfortunately died in 19... This year I got back from Europe, so it must have been 1965. Mark McQuarrie. He died on a climb out in Little Cottonwood. Mark was the first climber I ever knew. He was only about 19. That was gymnastically trained and had built himself up muscle-wise to be a climber, and he was amazing. As good as anybody as I ever climbed with. Unfortunately, he was killed with climbing one day with George Lowe out there. Had a fell over a flake and it cut his rope in half. Um, my friend Rick Reese uh, was an inspiring climber to me. I met Rick uh, when he was about 16 years old. He had just come back from climbing Mount Rainier, unguided, without an adult in the party. He was 16. Milt Hokanson was about the same age at Lloyd Arneson his other climbing mate up there. Uh, Rick was so solid, so good. Uh, he's always been an inspiring climber to me. Uh, I call him back. Uh, the uh, other people uh, around that time, I, I evolved to Switzerland. I took a job teaching at the Lazen American School and running the ski program in 1964, and I spent a year in Switzerland. And over there, I met some of the best climbers in the world. Dougal Hostin, who was a great Scottish ice climber and rock climber, who later did this, you know, the northwest face of Everest. Mick Burke, who climbed with him. The Fulton brothers, who were hard men, Scottish climbers, climbed with them. Uh, Gaston Rebeufois. I didn't ever climb with Gaston, but he lived over there, and I spent time sipping wine with him and uh, just being inspired by the guy. He was a little older then. He'd kind of cracked back a little. Pierre Mazot, a great alpine climber. You know, I was rubbing shoulders with all those guys. And had you ice climbed prior to going Yeah, I'd done a little ice climbing here, but I got into it more with Harlan. John Harlan, of course, was my sponsor over there. He hired me to run the ski program, and John and I climbed together quite a bit. John wound up falling off the Iger doing the direct system in 1966, and I would have been on that climb. Had my wife not turned up pregnant, and she kind of gave me the ultimatum, either we go home and have this child, or you get to stay here all alone and be a a climbing hero. I said, I'll go home with you, honey. I was such a nice guy, wasn't I? (laughs) Uh, I could have, you know, it was a juncture in my life, though, because there was an attractiveness. Harlan said, you're good enough, Ted. We can get you sponsored over here. You're going to have to do some big roots with me. I'd like you to do the Iger with me. And I had to go back to John and say, I'm not going to do the Iger. He was kind of mad at me. But he said, find me somebody who can climb quickly on direct aid, which is hanging on the gear. And I was, I was fast at direct aid. And I said, I know the fastest guy in the world. Let's try to get him. I called Leighton Corps in Colorado. And Leighton came over, took my place on that expedition. Um, so I had that turning point in my life. I came back, became a school teacher, and settled in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And then it was more weekend stuff, going to Tetons, being a ranger, right. doing all that stuff. Right. Well, maybe I'll ask you one more question just to sort of finish off this this portion uh, up through the late 60s. Um, and that being, what was the climbing community like in Europe as opposed to American in terms of this influence on you as a climber? Far more advanced than America was overall. I mean, we had some great climbers here. Like, don't get me wrong, Robbins, Chouinard, Leighton Core, all those old guys could climb wider with the Europeans. But the general level of climbing here was not nearly what it was in Europe. I mean, there are literally thousands of climbers out there every weekend that are almost at that standard. But I was very lucky to meet the artists of climbing, you know, the Walter Bonatti's, the Pierre Mazos. The John Harlan's, uh, Alec Fulton's, you know, these guys were state of the art in terms of mountaineering. And they were doing solid routes in the Alps, new routes. You know, John put up the Shroud, which is a new ice route on the Grand Jaras. Uh, they did the Foo, which was a huge climb. He did that with some Americans. Gary Hemming, who was a, by then a European climber, Tom Frost. Uh, and I think Stuart Fulton was on that with them. Um, and you would go out with those people, and they were so bold. But they were safe, mostly. I mean, I saw a few of them do some cranky things, but uh, they were mainly safe, but they were very bold. And I don't know if I was ever that bold. It was a scary thing for me. Uh, I was there with them and making my share of leads, but maybe they were as scared as I was. They were just not telling me. Right. <laughs> right. And do you feel like that made you more bold coming back here? It did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I got back to the Tetons, I was a pretty bold climber. Uh, I wouldn't say higher than my ranger mates, but maybe in some ways I was. You know, I'd kind of learned the European approach and... Um, I know I went out with Rick one day, and we were going to climb the Black Ice Couar, and I got sick. And I said, well, let's get a, you know, and I hung around camp way past the hour that we could go do the Black Ice. And I I said, let's go do the Underhill Ridge. We've never done it. And I went over there, and I climbed this crack that in Europe would have been just a moderate crack. It turned out to be almost 5'11", you know. I didn't even know it was that hard. And Rick says, my God, man, have you been climbing like that in Europe? And I said... Yeah, you panty waist, can you catch up with me? <laughs> I rubbed it in. <laughs> so it was a great feeling to have rubbed the shoulders of these great European climbers sure. at the time. And the difference between the Alps and the American mountains is quite huge. It's not that they're that much higher. It's just that they're, they're vast. There's so many great routes. I climbed with a Colorado guy named Bob Boucher. Bob was a great climber, and he and I did a whole bunch of routes in the Dolomites. Some old Buell Six routes, like the Palastro de Rosa on the Tofana. We did the uh, the direct route on the um, where are these names escaping? You should have got me a few years ago, and I could remember things. Um, oh, on the Marmolata, big face, almost four thousand feet of climbing. And a lot of it vertical. You know, it doesn't lay back. It's up. Right. And so we did some really fine routes uh, together and, and over there when the weather was bad in the Alps. And so I really came back from the Alps sort of, you know, 
But let me tell you, I was just as intimidated in the Tetons as I always was. The Tetons are pretty darn formidable themselves, you know. And a lot of the climbs out on the granite. I remember I came back and I was thought I was so hot, and I went out and thought I'd try the direct start on Tarzan, and I couldn't even get off the ground. <laughs> so some days you're not on. Right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, well, let's stop there for today. Okay. And we'll, uh, we'll kind of pick up next time with where we leave off here. Sounds fine. We've covered a lot of ground, so. Okay, today is um, June 16th, 2011. I'm Matt Driscoll, and I'm speaking with Ted, Ted Wilson. And Ted, uh, last time we spoke about um, some of the Alpenbach days and, uh, you know, some of the equipment that you guys were using back then, some of your early climbing experiences. And today I thought we'd start talking about um, when you began to work in the Tetons on the rescue team up there. So could you tell me a little bit about that? I got a call from my friend Rick Reese uh, in, in about April of 1966. Uh, I was just back from a year in Europe and and spent about a half a year teaching at Skyline High School in Salt I was looking for a summer job, and Rick said, would you like to come and work in the Tetons? And I said, you're kidding. He said, no. I've talked to Doug McLaren. They need another guy on the rescue squad. So I, I talked to Doug, and Doug invited me to come up. And, and Doug was? Doug was the South District... Ranger for Grand Teton National Park, and that's the there are two districts in Teton, North and South, and, mm-hmm. and this uh, uh, administrator has responsibility for mountain rescue and is over the mountain rescue team. Not directly, there's another guy under him named Dunbar Susong, who was the uh, immediate supervisor. He was called the South Sub District Ranger, and so. Uh, I talked to Doug, and he said, come up, I'd like to meet you before I give you a final deal. And I went up, and Doug uh, interviewed me and said, you're on, man. Mm-hmm. So, and was Rick working up there at this uh, point? Rick was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ralph Tingey was there. Bob Irvine was there. And uh, Pete Sinclair was there. And they needed me. So Doug explained to me I would not be a Jenny Lake Ranger, a, a mountaineering ranger, but rather they only needed me for my rescue skills mm-hmm. uh, because of, you know, number of jobs ahead of them. Mm-hmm. And so he made me a North District Road Patrol. So that summer we lived in Culture Bay and uh, spent the time in Culture Bay. And then when there was a mountain rescue to be done or whatever, I was relieved of my driving duties. And, Mm-hmm. Sent on down a TDY assignment to be right. a rescue ranger. Right. And what were your prior experiences in rescue? You mentioned your rescue training. Only through the Alfenbach Club here. And we had quite a bit, actually. Mm-hmm. We had a rescue uh, training through the sheriff's search and rescue responsibility. Of course, I look back at it and laugh at it because there was none of this sophisticated equipment laden, helicopter born stuff that goes on now. It was mm-hmm. just a bunch of basically high school kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, if there was somebody stuck on the cliff somewhere or in an inaccessible place, we got them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Do you remember had, any rescues with that? Oh yeah, we mm-hmm. had a rescue on the north face of Mount Olympus. I can't remember what name it was. 58 or 9, I think. And uh, 
couple of kids had gone up there and one had broken his hip. They tried to climb the face with a, with a clothesline. And <laughs> she turned into a full-scale wreck and almost half of the face on a horrible approach. Mm-hmm. Carrying gear up those slabs and everything. And, and getting this kid, he was in a lot of pain. He'd been up there for like three days and he had no water and we had no water and they dropped a mountain. We needed water and the airplane went over and, and dropped on a ledge near us a sea rescue kit that had fish hooks and diamonds in it. Believe it or not. And a draft. They totally blown it. They didn't know what they brought us. They didn't check it. So somehow we got water. I think somebody came up somewhere and we got it. Got replenished in the water, but it was like a two day deal. And you know, I remember that rescue very, very well. And then there were another other small ones. There's there were body recoveries, people falling off ledges, just picnickers and stuff, things of that nature. A couple of minor people were doing a lot of climbing then, so there wasn't a lot of climbing rescues, it was mainly stranded hikers, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we had enough training, we had a Rig and lower litter. That's about it. And set up anchors because we knew that from our climbing. And try to try to make it safe. How to belay the litter and keep it safe. And uh, we always worked with the sheriff's office. Their jeep patrol. And their idea of a good rescue was to roll up in all their gear. And they had a great big van that had a radio equipment and stuff. And of course the van had a coffee maker. And these guys were famous for standing around in the leisure suits doing absolutely nothing. And in fact, when we came down off that rescue off the North Face, we were all trash. It was like seven of us. Sealed out by We were totally trashed. And we carried this guy down to the trail as we approached this place where these guys were all standing around talking. They didn't know what to do above the road. Yeah. You know? They came right up the trail. They saw us coming. And, oh, oh, you guys look beat. Let us get the victim down. And they grabbed the victim and they walked no further than the football field. Mm-hmm. And the press was there. And so they came out and they took the rescue from rescuers. And, <laughs> and all we were was a bunch of guys that looked like beat up kids walking behind them, you know. And they got all the glory and they did all the interviews and the sheriff did the interview. We all on that night watched TV and got pissed. <laughs> and I think we told Pete Catullus, who was the lieutenant in the sheriff's department, was our rescue guy. I said, we're going to quit, Pete. We're not going to have any one of these jerks coming up after drinking coffee continuously <laughs> and taking our glory. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so you had that as experience. Some of the, some of the. Yeah, it's a good experience mm-hmm. too, and a, a good experience at the sheriff's office. That was a particularly bad one. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, in '66, then you're working North District, yeah. as a road patrolman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was golly, uh, early in the morning of, of August. The Peter Rescue is 26th and 7th of August, maybe off on that. But on the, on the early morning of the first day of the rescue, 6.30 or 7, the phone rang in my uh, little living quarters up in Colder Bay. And it was, I 
being uh, Dunbar Susong and said, Tad, we need you. We have a rescue getting ready to go on the North Face. You better be prepared for that. So, so that was 67, though, right? The, the rescue. 67. What okay. saying? So I think there's 66. Six, 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 did you start working in Teton in the yeah, summer? And then, so it was your second was summer six, up there. Yeah, 67. Mm-hmm. Right, 67. And he said, you better get ready for that. And I said, okay, I'll be down. And I hung up the phone and I thought, North Face, wait a minute. Whoa. A little tingle put out my back. Mm-hmm. You know? Have you climbed the North Face before? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wasn't afraid of the North Face. I was afraid of the rescue. Right. Face. What makes that? What makes a rescue particularly hard on the North Face? Uh, getting to the victim. Uh, and where you go with him? Where is he? Can you go down? Did you maybe find up to go up and get off some way? Inaccessible. Uh, and dangerous in terms of rock fall and ice fall. So uh, that's what concerned me. If you look at the north face of the Grand carefully, it has a series of ascending ledges. First ledge, second ledge, third ledge, fourth ledge, and that's how you climb it. Basically, you follow the weakness of the structure and you go up and down. Well, what that presents for rescue is if it's a traverse like that, which is a very long traverse. It's almost impossible to go down. You can't go down this way because you're all plumb. And when you go down, you swing, you got to swing with it. And that means setting up double belays, ratcheting. The, I mean, it would complicate the rescue to mm-hmm. be a week long. And, you know, it's very hard. But a lot of guys have climbed the North Face then, not even a lot of guys that would be able to kind of porter stuff out to us as needed. Maybe, but that's another complication. We've got a guy near death because of his loss of blood and the shock he's going in. We had to get that guy off in a hurry. So all of a sudden, since you can't go this way, where are you going to go? Well, you go from the second ledge all the way down to the grandstand. It's about 1,900 feet. <laughs> Loved, love distance. Now, what have you got? Well, you've got a part of the mountain that's never been climbed up to then and never been climbed since today. And why? Because it's basically overhanging, very few cracked systems. Nobody's taken the time to butt to pound in a bunch of expansion loops, and the park would take a dim view if they did. So we got to somehow navigate Terra Ignadita, and we're going to have to do it you know, without knowing what's going to be lost. And the limitations on the equipment were that we had one 600-foot Austrian cable that had been used on Iger Rescue. And not it had been, but it's the uh, same product. And, right. and it was a quarter-inch cable, and that's dangerous because a quarter-inch cable will hold a truck off the ground if it's static. But the rescue's not static. It's dropping, you know catch a little out crop of rock and drop the sled off it and you put a load on it, put a load on it. Right. It takes very little to break the quarter-inch cable. And the backup with rope blades is a whole different story because you want all this technical stuff? Mm-hmm. Is because rope blades um, have to be uh, belayed and the rope has to be belayed and in those days, we did it around our waist. So picture 
you or me holding eight or nine hundred pounds of two men, maybe more than that, in a, in a Stokes litter on a broken cable and then lowering it somewhere. Today, simple multiple brake bar will take care of that, but you know, we were into that. We didn't have that kind of gear, and we thought about it. Lanes around your belly, you know. And so there we were, and that's what we had to work with. And uh, so doing that, their rescue was really inadvisable technically. Mm-hmm. But we've got a guy who's alive and you do anything you can to save him. Right. Um, how, who discovered that, that people were up there that needed to be rescued and how did they discover that? Uh, Ralph Tingey was at home in, at Jenny Lake in his cabin and about two in the morning, uh, there was a knock at his cabin door and a couple of climbers were standing there and he said, Ranger, we were just up on Mount Owen, just below the north face, and heard somebody yelling for help. So Ralph uh, immediately drove down to the glacier overlook, which is just south of him, south of Jenny Lake, and took a pair of binoculars and a spotting scope and looked up onto the face, and he saw an S O. S signal from the face. And it was a young woman that was with the guy that was injured. We were using their light mm-hmm. to signal. And Ralph signaled back with the truck, which I'm sure she saw. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, then we had to wait for Dawn to figure out what we were going to do. And we scrambled. And I ran down to Jenny Lake. And by the time I got there, Pete Sinclair was there. And the rescue of the team was there. And we were... We were getting our gear together, uh, making sure we had all the equipment we needed, and we were, while we are packing gear, it wasn't like a strategy, we were talking about what we were going to do. And Pete, at that point, had become brilliant. He'd been, he was drunk on the skunk at 4 a.m. He did a birth. Have you ever read the story about it? I've, I've read it. I've read a few articles about it. Anyway, it was a great article that Pete wrote, in his, or a chapter that he wrote, uh, um, we Aspired. Have you ever read that book? No. It's kind of a cult classic. Mm-hmm. He wrote a brilliant chapter in there on him being rock at four in the morning on a birthday party on the Snake River and coming home and being quickly sobered by the news he had a North Face Rescue to put together. And Pete was by that time pretty organized and Pete was a very smart guy and he was our leader and and we were all pretty smart guys too. And we stood around and said, well, you know, he said, Rick and I will go up on the first, we'll go up and do a reconnaissance. Uh, we'll go up and buzz the facts and see what the situation is, find out exactly where they are. And we'll be back. Uh, no. And then after that, we'll be, so we did. did they come down or did they get dropped off? I think they may have. Yeah, they, they got dropped off. And assuming they're in a place we can move them from reasonably, we'll try to take them up or around the corner. On the second second ledge runs all the way around the mountain. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty commodious. I mean, it has some spots, but it's pretty commodious. And so if we we think we can get to him via the walk, climbing up from the lower saddle all the way up the old spalding route to the upper saddle, and then up to the Owen Spalding route and going across the second ledge to the edge of the north face, down the second ledge on the north face to where the victim is. 
And that was the original. He said, unless you hear, we didn't, we didn't have much radio. We had like two radios in the entire group. We said, unless something breaks, we'll tell you. But in the meantime, assume that's our plan. Well, Rick, uh, Rick and he were dropped off and they started up toward the victim. They next took, um, myself and, uh, Mike Aramarth, I think. Mike. Mike and I rode up. Yeah, Mike Aramarth and I rode up and we were carrying some of the heavy gear. I had that big cable that weighed about 50 pounds. And he had, we all had big loads. And we climbed the own spalding now, but it's easier for us. We don't need a rope on it. And walked around the second ledge. And at the same time this happened fortuitously, uh, when the accident happened the day before, Bob Irvine and Lee Ortenberg. Lee Ortenberg is the guy that wrote the guidebook to the Teton. Brilliant mountaineer, great guy. They were on the summit and they heard the calls for help. So they knew a rescue was about to unfold. So they went down to the second lunch during the day and set up ropes where it might be tricky. And so all we had to do is use a little handrail to put first second walk along it. Mm-hmm. And so they had already prepared the round ahead of even Pete and Rick. And so now four of them are down the victim, and then Mike and I came along, and then Tingy came, and then the uh, others came along, and we were basically in shape for rescue. By four that afternoon, I think most of us were down to the victim, and in a short period of time, we did the the uh, first aid work and got the girl off the mountain. What kind of state was he in? Uh, three protruding bones in his lower leg, extensive loss of blood. What was his mood? Uh, he, he was conscious? He was kind of just off. Mm-hmm. He just even welcomed us. He just kind of looked at us. Well, it was good to see you guys. Yeah. You know, and we had no drugs. They did not allow us to dispense drugs. drugs. We ever see somebody die, worry about somebody getting a phony high, you know, or that the rescuers would take <laughs> So <laughs> that was the rule of the law. Uh-huh. Well, anyway, so at that point, now I'm getting described the whole rescue. Yeah, there. yeah, absolutely. And I also, I'm, I'm curious about how she was doing. Oh, she was just fine. And what's what's her name? Her what name was Lori Huff. Lori Huff. H-O-U-G-H. And Lori uh, was in great shape. I mean, well, she'd had a bad night, but she, you know, now she was physically fine. Mm-hmm. And she'd done what she could to make him comfortable and gave him, given him all her water and her food and, and taken care of him. And, uh, so then I think Rick and Pete took her on road and climbed back up to the upper saddle where the backup team met her and took her down and they flew her off that night. So so there we were at four o'clock. Really no chance to go any further that day. And because of the way the gear got transported and stuff, they said, uh, Pete looked around, he said, you know, we gotta get those three ropes over from the saddle. And he says, who can go? And I really wasn't doing much at that point. So I said, I'll go get him. So I soloed back up. And there was some climbing. I mean, uh, we were held down to get him, but there was a climbing part. And so 
There's some free climbing up to about five seven or five eight that I did there. And I climbed back up, got to this to the corner, went across the second ledge, got three ropes, maybe got Michelin went in. Three ropes, twenty-four pounds, and they're awkward. And then climbed back, got back down to the seven eighty five three quarters six. So by that time we had all the gear. And then Rick and, of course, Rick and Pete had already gone back with the girls, so they stayed that night with Ralph Tingy and the backup team on the upper saddle. And at the side were Lee Artenberg, myself, Bobber, and um, Bob and and uh, Rick was just hammered. They'd been climbing the west face of the Axon Ridge the day before. Pretty good climb, and they were just tired of me. So they get some sleep, guys. So they bivouacked in, and we didn't have a real bivouac here. And we had, did have down jackets most I had a good old pair of French jars. I bought Chamonix and uh, little woolnickers, real warm. So I decided to be his nursemaid. Because he couldn't sleep and he was in terrible pain and he had no drugs. And what I, was the victim's name, by the way? His name was Gaylord. Um, I don't have his mental things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, with Gaylord there, and he's hurting, and uh, Henri, just like you would expect him, you know, and you have no problem with and I tried to keep him occupied because he wasn't sleeping, and so I just tried to keep his mind off the pain and started talking about climbing in Europe because he spent several years in Europe climbing, and I had just come back from a full year of really pretty intense climbing in Europe, and we'd done a couple of the same routes, and, and I'd done some that he hadn't, and he'd done some that I hadn't, and so we shared information and talked, talked about the characters that we climbed with in Europe and all of that. And uh, actually, I felt like a pretty friend. I mean, we were just kind of, you know, Gaylord Campbell, pardon me. That, that's etched in my brain. But uh, that's 72 years old coming out there. Uh, and uh, so the, the night went on about... Four or five in the morning, I had thrifted off. Things had got off and Gaylord had simmered down. I think even he drifted a little, probably hallucinating at that point. And I hear, and I look over the edge, and there is a helicopter trying to get up to our elevation. Those helicopters in those days were very weak. They were just piston driven little bells with bubbles up in front. And I hear the helicopter. See him working up, and I figure, well, you know, it must be Doug checking us out. And sure enough, he flew by and he waved at me. You know, it was Doug. And I look over at Bob and 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 Lee, and they're just <laughs> so I'm not going to bother them. And then he goes out of sight. He's kind of around the northwest part of the mountain. We're kind of on a bulge on the mountain, so I can't see. And I sit there and I'll sit here and I look and he's he's up about twice as high as his roof, right above me. And next thing I know, there's an object in the air. And now Lee goes, yeah. he waits. And he sees the object coming, he goes, oh shit. 
It's not trying to catch him, he's trying to defend himself. It lands right in his hand. There's a pure strike. And the helicopter goes back. Wonder what this is. I said it's your lunch, Lee. <laughs> anyway, Lee opens it and it's full of drugs. So we gave him a good shot of morphine. And life became a lot better for Gaylord's story right then. And uh, that was one of the funnier stories I think of was the throw for <laughs> And and then of course here comes Pete and Rick not long after and pretty soon we're all under their starting soldiers. And we had a few relatively routine lowers to the edge, outer edge of the first ledge. And then man, you're looking into the abyss. I mean you you look down there, you stand up, it's like looking on down those big walls of the doorways. You don't see anything until you see the screen, you know? And you're holy. You'd have to lean out another five feet to even see the ledges and stuff, if there are any. And so that was pretty intimidating. So we're sitting there. Actually, before we started the lowers, we knew about that because we'd done our conversation. And we said, um, maybe we can go up with him. So we talked about it and worked on it and thought about it. The problem we had was that he was so badly injured, we'd have to go up with the Stokes litter. And that's very, very hard to do. Again, traversing and upward traverses. And then even when you get him to the second ledge, you'd have to set up a series of traverses along the ledge to belay the thing. So you're looking at a, you know, almost impossible thing to do because going back to the upper saddle is still a big rescue. You, you couldn't have landed the even when you got to the upper cell, which is relatively easy terrain, you, you couldn't have landed a uh, helicopter up there. You have to take him all the way down to the lower cell. And, and that, it's a stoke litter, it's a full day's operation right there. So we said, well, let's give it a go. So we lowered Lee over on exploration. And Lee went down, he says, I got a ledge. And so we made the big drop, big yawning, big drop. And we got down and secured it. We all rappelled down and got there. And then he looked again and we found another ledge. And we, these were about 125, 150 foot lowers. We made that. And then we we go over the, he goes over the gun exploration again. He can't find the ledge. So he Jumars back, or trusted Jumar. I mean, German clamps were not. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were. We didn't have any. He comes up on Trussex. He comes up where the axis I can't see the bottom. He said, I think, based on what we have done today, that we can make one big, long 600 foot drop of the cable and get him onto the grandstand. The grandstand's another big ledge on the same angle as the others. They're all with the strata. And it's a big, wide, commodious ledge which we could get down this way. We could go down with full-scale lowers with traverses. Mm-hmm. And so let's give it a go. So Lee went over. Now, here's the problem you have. You have 600 feet. What do you do if you get to the end of the 600 feet and they're just hanging there? The rescuer 
in the sled. What do you do? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, <my goodness. laughs> uh, we would probably try to winch them up some way. Because you could certainly get Leah. He could come back up on. We did have a whole bunch of rope tied to give him a crappy delay, and he could probably figure a way to get back up on that rope. But we would have had to say that we left the victim hanging in space, and now we would have had a north face of the Iger where the clergy hunt for several years and people came to look at it with with binoculars, and it was a tourist attraction. And we didn't want to have that kind of thing going on, and so we decided to take the risk. Before we took the risk, a very interesting thing got done. Uh, we had two incredible mathematicians in our organization. Father Lee Ortenberg. Yeah. Lee Ortenberg was a professional math guy for Sylvania in what was then in Palo Alto, which was the beginnings of Silicon Valley. So he's a high-powered guy, and Irvine's a top professor at Weaver State in math. Um, so they start talking about the value of dropping rocks and timing. And so, you know, you take a rock this big and you drop it and you listen and you got your watch going. We didn't have a good stopwatch. We had sweep second hands and, uh, and you hear click and you hear the rock noise and you're hoping it's not just bouncing off a ledge. <laughs> and you look at your watch and you get so many seconds and now to get an absolutely accurate reading, you have to know all the uh, air coefficients, and what it would, you'd have to know the exact size of the rock because air changes any anything that drops. The rock drops pretty fast, you know. But anyway, so they're arguing over these formulas, <laughs> sitting there. Hell, is this the time to have it? Damned academic. <laughs> Can't they do this at the next National Association of Academic Professors? <laughs> but then I say to myself, this is the only thing we got going for. Yeah. I don't know anything about this drug. Otherwise, we're all going back. And we'll talk about a hell of a story to have in a math lecture later on. In life, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> so they're arguing over the, the math, and, and they're arguing even over the Amount of time clicks by, <laughs> but they finally agreed on the time, and they finally worked together and got a formula, and they ran it, and they said we think we're close to six hundred, and maybe a little shy of it, so we think it's a go. And after all, guys, going back up is about a four-day proposition, and we said okay. Let's go for it. So I think Pete agreed to take the lower, and uh, we and he had a. It was very dramatic. He had a radio. We had a radio on top. And now we didn't know at this time the entire park is listening to the radio, right. and uh, they found this to be a very dramatic thing in their sure. life, you know, and their husbands are up there and everything. And the park superintendent says, we're making this drop, you know. 
is you know, you know, people say, well, we got the fun fish band here. Oh, there's a lad we could have used, but hell, I didn't know it's here, so let's keep going. <laughs> and all of a sudden we hear. And we the park had cleared this channel just for us, because we only had two channels in the park. And they cleared it just for us. And all of a sudden we hear, E4, this is E7. Well, they're like North District maintenance guys. Have you got a number nine lock washer over there? I got this thing I got to seal up, and I haven't got one. And thought I'd run over and get it, so I can go home tonight. And before we could even say a word, the other guy comes back and says, Well, let me look, Bill. And you can hear him rumbling in his box. And, and, and we're going nuts. And <laughs> finally, there's a little gap in the conversation. <laughs> and the park superintendent comes on and says, U4 and E5, this is S1. Get up, God damn. There's <laughs> a rescue going on. <laughs> Jack, I mean, Jack was just, Jack Anderson, a great superintendent. He's the guy that used to the L, Stone Grizzly. Mm-hmm. Jack just chewed the butts out. And that was it. You know how you want to And so all of a sudden we heard, we're down. <laughs> but he'd come 20 feet short. That's a lot of distance. Mm-hmm. But he was able to pendulum now hmm. with that thing over and park it. Hmm. And got it parked. And uh, then I think Mike repelled, or Mike went down, maybe. Somebody else, but on the on the ledge when the Lord was done, there were four of us. There's myself, Rick Reese, Bob Irvine, and uh, Rob Pingy. And we we're all the old Alphamock crowd. So we had an Alphamock night on what we called the IC or the uh, balcony ranger station. <laughs> and uh, next morning then we had to do something very scary. And there's make a make a three hundred foot body repel to the first the ledge peated or scene on the way down. Set that up for another three hundred foot body repel. Hmm. These are doing body repels and single strand by the way, which is a climbing you know, is pretty hard. And so we wound up um, doing that because we could there's no way to get a knot through a brake bar. You can't break that repel. You have to do it on a body repel. I don't know if many climbers know how to do one of those anymore. You go down to your crotch, up your back, over your shoulder, now to the other hand. Mm-hmm. It's the old classic alpine repel. Cuts India. It's painful. It's contracting. And it's a nasty way to go down. And so we all took our turn at that. I think that took like two hours to stand because we had to come slowly. And remember, Bob Irvine had the worst ride down. He, his, we'd pat our pants and everything with clothing, and Bob's clothing had slipped and was putting a permanent scar down here. Mm. Uh, but we all got down safely. It was a very scary, scary thing I've ever done climbing. Scariest thing on the rest of the And we got down, and pretty soon by noon or one o'clock, we were all over. And then we lowered another six or seven hundred feet down the grandstand. But those were easy. 
that was fairly gentle road. A little scary because of loose rock coming off, but it was it was very reasonable. Finally got him down the glacier about four thirty or five o'clock, and uh, they pushed him away in the helicopter. And he so, went, how long in total was that rescue then? From the time you guys got up to him, to first day was getting to him. Mm-hmm. The second day was getting down to the balcony or to the balcony repel and. The back, uh, uh, the grandstand, yeah, to the balcony mm-hmm. for the second 600 feet mm-hmm. and getting parked on the grandstand. And then the third day was us getting down off that rappel, coming down. So, one, three full days. First two days, we didn't do any rescue, we just found him and gave, did the medicine, got ready for it. So, that's the, that's the story. And so, afterwards. Um, how did he end up for one? He went to Jackson Hospital. Uh, he seemed to rebound quickly. He was a tough guy. Uh, after he had his medical care done and taken care of and stuff, he was the press went in to see him because they'd already talked to us. And the press was all over. We had Washington Post woman there. We had LA Times that we had. So it was immediately kind of a national story. National story. Mm-hmm. If it were today, they would have had helicopters flying around taking mm-hmm. pictures. I mean, is that big a story? Um, Dad, there were no helicopters, but there was, there was a couple of light planes went by with film footage of it. And um, they went in to see Campbell and they said, What do you think? This is pretty amazing. You're safe. Life's going to be okay. I hope he said, Oh, they screwed up the rescue. <laughs> Terrible rescue. Took him three days getting up there. What's going on around here? He said, I just got back climbing from Europe. If I'd been with my buddies, they would have put me on my their backs and called me off, and we would have been in town for a beer. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he said. And uh, Dixie Scott, who was the reporter for the Washington Post, came to interview me, and she told me this story. I said, wow. She said, you know what I said to him? I said, no. I said, she said, I think you're just full of shit, Mr. Campbell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it pissed us off. Uh-huh. You were pissed off today. The guy has remained in transient. Uh-huh. Um, he... I was interviewed for my daughter's film on the story, and in the interview, he just sticks to the same old guns that he felt like he had to teach us mountaineering 101. So there was there was no appreciation at all for the effort you guys have made. So I had read some Sorry. quotes where I thought he said like, "Oh, like I'm really appreciative they got me down, but they did it all wrong." Well, I finally um, said something like that. Right. Way when my daughter, my daughter. Right. Not, not my daughter, but her producer interviewed me. I uh, I gave it up years ago. I mean, I thought I'm give it to him. I had a job to do. You don't you don't have a thing on the registration form that says, "Are you a good person that will thank our rescuer?" Right. You don't have that. You do it for human life, then you do it for the principle of it. That's mm-hmm. what it's about, and you get paid to do it. Two hundred, I mean, four dollars and sixty-five cents an hour. Right. So, 
Yeah, I thought, well, what the hell, what other things to do? But you know, it sat really deeply in my friends. Rick recently, mostly. Yeah. And Bob Irvine, he still sees over. And he's taken that position. There was no justification all of what he said. He was making up things about being carried off on. Nobody does that on a mountain. Right. Nobody gets carried off on somebody's back. They might get, he may have seen Cordy getting lowered on the Iger, somebody's back. Well, they have a, a back rig that they use for a direct that's connect to a direct cable. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't really mean you're carrying it. And well, and the Iger has a different rescue culture there. I mean, nowadays, right? I mean, it's basically a climber gets stuck up there, you know, a helicopter rescue is likely to happen. And in, in certain mountains, certainly in the U.S., there just isn't that. Well, rescue. No, no, actually, still today, <laughs> you would have been off that mountain in three hours. Really? They would have just been a rescuer in, short hauled him in. They would have dropped him off. He would have done the first aid. He would have raided him back. They would have dropped the D ring, mm-hmm. connected it all up, and they would have been right. in Jackson in 30 minutes. Right. But anyway, at, at that time, there wasn't that rescue culture at oh, all. Oh, we didn't have the helicopters. Yeah. None of that. I mean, it was all ground based rescue. You know, you didn't do it in the air. The only air that was used was support to get you in and out on big enough landing areas. That's it. And no place to land on the north face of the Grand Teton. And the helicopter wasn't even strong enough to hover above us to do things for us. When when Doug threw me the drugs, they had to be moving. You know, they don't hover well. They start mm-hmm. hovering now. And so he was moving pretty fast. It makes the spiky through oh. even more impressive, right? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it was quite an experience. I mean, it was... Uh, Formative experience, I think, in one way or another for every one of us. Yeah. Uh, well, a couple more questions about it. Um, one, did the appreciation that you got, say, from the press or from any other source, did that make up at all for oh. not getting appreciated by well, Gaylord? Can. We've all been heroes in our own minds all our lives. <laughs> I think we were all into true heroism of it, which is... What was it about that experience that gave me some extra? And I mean, hey, we got flown the next year back to Washington, D.C., and we got great big, beautiful, golden uh, um, valor awards given to us by the Secretary of Interior, Stuart Udall. Uh, we had a chance to meet the President of the United States. Who was the President at that time? Lindsey Johnson. Right. Who pat us on the back and said, You're a brave bunch of boys. Right. Well, and it's almost just as cool to have met Stuart Udall, I'm sure. Stuart was great. He had us in his office for over an hour. We retold the story to him. He served as cokes, and, and then we went down to the ceremony, and he was there, and they had the, they had the naval band. And it wasn't just for us, it was the annual Interior Awards. Mm-hmm. And part of the awards are their Valor Awards, and they usually give two or three a year away, mostly to individuals, but sometimes to units. And they gave it to the two. Well, we each got an individual one, but then the unit award was given to the rescue team. So, mm-hmm. well, hey, we got a good public deal out of it. And in a way, after it's all over, the Campbell thing might just makes it more interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, he turned out to be a really loner guy, a brilliant mathematician, uh, spent his life alienating people, a little, little bit of a Kirk Hawkins type mm-hmm. guy. Well, he's now living up in the North Minnesota woods with his mother, who's over 90, who 
uh, I was told by the producer he was abusive to her while he was there, not physically, but verbally to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's sort of a Ted Kaczynski kind of backwards mm-hmm. place, you know. He, and he's kind of a Ted Kaczynski kind of guy. He's just mm-hmm. an oddball. Mm-hmm. I think a total narcissist. In fact, the night I shared Alpine stories with him, uh, he talked glowingly of his climbing and how he had developed. And he said, let me look at your forearms. And he said, oh, you need to work on that muscle right there. <laughs> Just <laughs> Yeah, I guess when you're in that position, grasping for straws to prove to yourself just how strong you are, right? Because obviously you're about as vulnerable as you can get at that point. But, um... He's not a pleasant guy. Mm-hmm. Um... You said before that this experience left a lasting influence on you. In what ways do you think it did? You know, I wish I could put that one in words because I've tried to do it my whole life. I think, though, the basis, when I finally got down onto the top of the glacier and got that repel box, I knew I was safe. I first of all broke out in tears. And then I said to myself, can there be another problem in life as big as that one? And the answer was, no. Well, I think it's given me a lot of personal confidence. I'm not afraid to walk into things and get them done. I'm not afraid to take on big assignments. I'm not afraid to make an ass out of myself if I have to. I'm not afraid to be a nice guy. I mean, it just gave me a lot of confidence in almost everything I do. I don't think it was that experience alone to develop that, but I think it crystallized it and gave me a reflection on that. Mm-hmm. So for me, it turned out to be a really positive deal. Mm-hmm. But I think for every one of us, I mean, one of those guys wasn't successful. We go through the whole team. We had academics, researchers, you know, brilliant mathematicians, uh, Rick Reese, who started the Ellison Coalition, you know, Tingy, who became a star in the Park Service, became superintendent, assistant superintendent, Denali, superintendent of all the regional parts of Alaska, came down and was superintendent of the Tetons. Uh, not one of us, uh, Mike Ehrmarts, who was one of the top uh, German scholar, German history scholars in the country. Every one of us, uh, Pete Sinclair became a highly rated writer. Wasn't Tingy's background in um, some sort of Arabic he studies? Okay. okay. He has a PhD from Johns Hopkins. And he went as far away from Ethiopia as anybody can get from Ethiopia. <laughs> <laughs> you forgot about it. Didn't matter. He went, he went Arctic instead. <laughs> <laughs> Always had a, a little piece of that that uh, I think it helped us. Yeah. And we were like that. We were not climbing bums. So you couldn't be a climbing bum in those days. Well, not the climbing bums couldn't do it. They'd do a great job, I'm sure. But I think the intellectual element of it allowed us to do things like that math problem and make judgments and understand the pressures of sticking together really well. So we never broke down as a unit. Everybody, Pete was brilliant. He didn't organize by some flowchart. He said, who's best at this, that, or the other, and told him to go do it. When they had a problem telling him. 
That's the way people act. So the team are never broken. Everybody's willing to go do the thing they could do the best, or they they saw the need to get it done quickly. I mean, I went to the ropes in one bad place where we had rocks coming down on us and ice coming down on us. Rick Reese was able to have the guts to go out on a little tiny ledge and pound bolts in the mountain when they had to go in. Everybody just had a moment of stardom. Uh, Irvine was the safety czar, you know. Not nobody called him that. He just took it over. Mm -hmm. And with this mathematical, very clinical mind of everyone, he was able to watch every little thing about safety going on. You know, was it you know, check off the sled. Is the thing rigged right? Check off this anchor. Is everything there? Are the vectors on the cable and the anchors right? You know, you can't vector them like this. You got to vector them like this. You know, I mean, he, every little element of safety was Irvine's deal. And we had a safety. Right? Mm -hmm. And he gave you real shit if you were breaking. Mm -hmm. Or if you didn't buddy check everything. You know, am I tied in? Yeah, you're tied in. The buddy check rule was absolutely adhered to, so nobody didn't tie in wrong or anything. Mm -hmm. Well, these are a couple just related questions. Um, you know, you mentioned that all you guys ended up having very successful lives. Um, what kind of relationship do people in rescue have with the possibility of failure? Do you even think about failure as a possibility? I do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think a Rick Reese does. We're different people. Rick almost looked at it as another day out in the mountains. He, he'd wake up in the morning and stretch and say, God, it's beautiful. Let's see. We've got to go climbing. <laughs> yes. I mean, uh, Rick told me after he just saw it as another bit of thing. I was scared and intimidated. Um, thought of every, every, every action I saw. As we as it unfolded, I I saw it going wrong. I saw how it could go wrong, and everything we did that was the case. Rick didn't worry about that. He knew that's all we could do. I mean, I'd be a probably a crappy battlefield leader because I'd be overguessing everything the general came up with. Um, but that was that was uh, failure was I think in the minds of some of us in the minds of. Well, not others. Right. Well, it just seems like something, and I know this has come up in interviews I've done with the climbers before, is that uh, a somewhat positive relationship with failure can be beneficial in that, you know, when you're climbing, you fail sometimes, you fall sometimes. And obviously, being safe and secured in your equipment system and gear system allows you to do that. Um, but it seems like... Uh, being able to sort of recognize failure as something that's part of the game can be beneficial. Well, I certainly didn't. I actually looked at it as in its subparts, you know. I didn't worry about failure in terms of the entire rescue. But if any of those subparts had failed, it would have the entire rescue. Right. We probably you could have had uh, eight men going off that mountain. Right. One big heap, you know. Well, it seems like if you're thinking about um, failure in each little situation, you're just considering all the possibilities, which is beneficial, I would assume, in a rescue. Uh, I think it's been very helpful to me in my life because I, I tend to, uh, when I look at a problem, I try to envision all the angles where I can blow it. 
and then try to work on this. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I don't know if the North Face gave me that. I kind of took that to the North Face, but it certainly reinforced it. Mm -hmm. Oh, and one final question just related to the 67 rescue. How do you think that rescue or later work on rescue teams uh, has affected your climbing? Well, it certainly made it safer because I became knowledgeable of the mechanics of climbing and how you could blow it as a climber because I saw a lot of, I picked up a lot of bodies and I rescued a lot of guys that had made a mistake of one kind or another and learned from them every time I did it. Um, but I, but I think it just gave me a, a nice overview of it, and uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I would like to, you know, talk about some of your your climbing and or skiing experiences after '67. Um, but do you want to do that now, or do you want to try and do you have do you have more time now, or? I'm probably okay. Okay, do another afternoon. Okay, great. So let's uh, let's talk about some of what you did. After this, how, how much longer did you work uh, up at the Tetons after that? Well, I was 67, and I left after the summer of 69, so I was there almost two years. Uh, that summer was my third year, or my second year, and then I came back for two more years in the Tetons. Okay. So I was in 68 and 69 mm -hmm. also. Yeah. And were you still working as a teacher at this point? Still at Skyline High School. Okay. And what did you teach at Skyline High They taught uh, political, well, government, they call it. They renamed it political science, but it was government. Right. It included uh, <clears throat> history, some geography. Mm -hmm. It was social sciences. Sure. Um, how did your climbing develop after this point? What were some of the bigger adventures that you took? After the Teton, entire Teton experience. Right, right. Well, I became a really pretty good climber. I mean, it was all a good climber when I first got Tetons, but, you know, the Tetons are such a varied and interesting range. It demands quite a bit out of you that it really honed my bigger mountain climbing. Of course, I'd done that in Europe the year before I got the Tetons, but prior to Europe, I was a rock climber. Now I was a mountaineer, broader base climber. And the Tetons, I think, where I got to climb two or three days a week was a real party. I don't know how they could have caught that a job. <laughs> and, uh, we, you know, it was really great. And, and so I felt the Tetons had given me a lot of confidence. Okay. I came back, though, uh, in October, I think, of... What year was it? Let's see, I left in 1966. Oh, I was going to say that uh, it, I had a little disruption in my climbing progress in October of 65. I had returned from Europe, partly because I'd so overdone the pleasure while I was there. I sort of cranked back and had to finish up some schoolwork and stuff. And so didn't climb as much during that summer of 65 as I would have am I right? Well you started working at, at uh, Oh no, pardon me, this is before I went to Europe. Right. This is 
Oh, a lot of years ago. <laughs> this is 1965. I'm back from Europe, and I have two bad experiences. One is my friend John Harlan falls off the north face of the Iger that year. Uh, and uh, it was a climb I would have been on had my wife not been pregnant and I had changed my mind about my future. And I loved John. He was an amazing climber. And he put me up for a year and I taught his ski school for him in the Louisiana American School. And, and it just turned my heart out. Second thing that happened was that that fall, I think it was October 65, my dear, dear friend Martin McQuarrie cut his rope a little cottonwood and died with George Lowe. So at the end of 65, I was kind of fed up, you know? I just thought, this is not something to be doing. But, you know, the buzz kept going. There was a little fire in there that never went out. It's like I had a pilot light, you know. And uh, so when I got invitation to go to Tetons in 66, it was kind of like renewing myself as a climber, starting again in a way. I mean, I'd have to start again technically, but psychologically I almost started again. I knew I wanted to start. I cleared it with my wife when I took the job up there. But my first climbs were kind of intimidating, you know, some of them were kind of easy. And, but as I did one after another, all of a sudden, climbing for me became good again, you know. And I was, I was, I was below the edge I was at in the Alps where everything was a little death defined. And I felt comfortable. I could go enjoy a good hard day in the mountains and come home and don't think I'd endangered my children. And so Teton climbing was like that. <laughs> I never felt threatened in the t- only threatening time in Tetons was the rescue. Right. The rest of it was just the glory of a great little mountain range that's commodious, good weather, and worst weather you get is just get wet. Right. And at what point where did you climb in a situation where you were kind of? Uh, facing that kind of terror again, or that risk that, say, you faced on the 67 rescue or some of the climbs you're talking about in Europe? Since 67? Yeah, after, after that point. Oh, I don't, I mean, I had some tough leads, so I mm-hmm. kind of sweated out, mm-hmm. but... Um, Did you, have you climbed in Alaska in, in any sort of situation? Yeah, all the Alaskan climbs, I had a ball in that mechanic. Had a ball on Mount Dickey and um, ice climbing. Um, I think it all became much less adventuresome and more contained and more family oriented. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was just from 67 on, uh, climbing for me was just a great sort of mid life experience. By then, I was a middle aged guy. Mm-hmm. And I introduced all my children to it. I took every one of them up to Grand Teton. Could never get my wife up, but uh, it. I took when I was an active woman. I took my ward up the mountain 
kids in my ward, you know, I said, hell, I would have taken an old cow if it asked me to go, you know what I mean? Uh, it was just, it was, the mountains became, for me, much more of a reflective exploration than climbing. When I was young, whenever I looked at the mountain, it wasn't beautiful. It was, does it have a crack system? <laughs> when I was older, and I looked at the mountain, I said, I don't care if it's got a crack or not. Look at that, huh? That's a beautiful peak. And I became more of an esthete and a, an aesthetic, and I uh, enjoyed the, looking at the plants and the flowers for a change, observing the geology, less from the climber's point of view, but from the beauty of the limestone. Not does it have pockets, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. So not kind of more strictly from a vertical point of view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More from the mountains in their true role to the earth rather than the mountains as just part of presenting a gymnastic exercise. Right. And, and a sporting exercise. I really brought it out, and I think that is what I am today and what limited climbing I still do. I get so much more out of it because mm-hmm. it's not just the climb, it's the, the little flower I just passed. Right. Or, oh, they're not on this ledge, step on that flower. You know, that's a lot more beyond. Before I would have pulled it out thrown away if I needed to. Right. <laughs> right. Well, let me stop this for a second and ask you a couple more questions. So, what's your, what are your opinions then on how climbing was pushed, say, in specifically in the late 80s when this development of rappel bolting and sport climbing and pushing grades sort of grew more and more? Hey, the guys can't ruin it because they can't go above 80 feet. Want to be a gymnast? Go ahead. You can do it downtown uh, or you can go out in the mountains. I would prefer if I were a gym climber uh, or a trap, I mean, a sport climber to do it on a nice cliff somewhere, but I've done it myself. I think it's a heck of a good time. Mm-hmm. It, it's not climbing. It's neat. It's, it's, it's really not climbing. It is a different kind of sport, but it uses some of the same physical skills. And I think a good gym climber or a good uh, sport climber can become a superb mountaineer, but the step, the step from being a good gym sport climber to full-on mountaineer is bigger than the one you got to be an expert sport climber. You can be, I've seen kids go out and they're 14 years old that don't weigh anything and they're pushing 511C at the end of the day and they went from here to here just like that and then they worked for another year and they got up to 12D or maybe a 13A and there they are. They're kind of an accomplished gym climber or there's no difference, I think. A different technique, but it's no different than sport. Okay? But from here, through responsibility of setting up your own aid, I mean your own protection, to the responsibilities of knowing the varieties of the mark, to the responsibilities of knowing all the safety, to how to catch a 40 or 50 foot fall, how to take one safely, to how to ice climb, and if you want to get really good, to dry tool, to let's go on. That is a far bigger gap than this one. So I always say to young people, don't forget the big mountains. It's another sport 
you'll thoroughly enjoy if you ever take it up. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that you said there seems really interesting to me, that being that, you know, you mentioned yourself as becoming a more reflective climber as you grew older um, and taking time to see things. Um, do you think that sport climbers who kind of look at these walls or crags and start seeing different lines, isn't that a kind of uh, aesthetically attuned activity or perception? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was only talking about the technical elements of this right when I made that sort of false dichotomy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, uh, sure, people are alert to nature around them and the beauty of the wall in front of them and the, and the structure of the cracks, if they ever use one. They don't use them a lot, but uh, that, you know, it's just like bouldering. Bouldering is another, you know, kind of offspring of climbing. And, and bouldering can be just wonderful. You don't need to mess around the rock. It takes a lot of guts. Mm-hmm. Uh, my son's a boulder. He's gotten up to about feet V7, which is really quite good, and, and he loves it. And he does it, you know, he's been a very high-powered PhD student, and when he needs three or four hours of relaxation, he'll zip out to the canyon, take a big bottle of Coke with him, and go find a shady nook with a big boulder and push a root for a while and come home totally relaxed mm-hmm. and energized and feeling good about himself. Mm-hmm. So those are great things. I'm not saying you can't be... A complete athlete in any of them. I'm just saying, if you're going to take all the, the uh, various types of climbing, the most complete is mountaineering, where you start at the bottom and get to the top and takes every skill there is. And all of these you can add the aesthetic dimension to, the interpretive dimension to. You know? mm-hmm. No, I admire everything they do. Mm-hmm. I, I go by a climbing gym and I see a guy on there climbing... Five eight, and he's a little shaky. He's getting started. I go, man, go. You're great. Mm-hmm. It'll be better. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think about some of the just kind of along the same line here? Some of the developments in gear that have obviously taken place uh, around that same period, uh, late seventies to early eighties, and kind of forward. Um, how they have changed the sport or changed mountaineering. The gear has made the sport more accessible through lightness. It's made it safer through cams, melee that can be placed so quickly in places that used to just be horrible in terms of driving cracks or driving pitons. Uh, placing of clean gear, you take it out, you don't lose in the rock. Um, <clears throat> the, now the idea you can go backpack Yellowstone for a week with a 28-pound pack on your back, including food, is mind-boggling to me. But if you if you adopt the new light backpacking, um, you can make climbing so much more enjoyable. Uh, I just think gear and the way we look at the mountains now is just terrific. And, and uh, the gear is very, very good. The gear can be a problem, though, if it makes... It's so easy that climbers might put themselves in a dangerous position. You can't let your gear be your determination on a mountain. Just because you've got a good set of crampons and a couple of good tools, you got to you got to be able to climb that ice sheet. Particularly if there's no way you can practically protect it. Mm-hmm. And so the skills must go along with the gear. The gear can't run ahead of the skills. 
And so don't use good gear unless you're up to it. And when you got it, don't let it make you too confident. Mm -hmm. That seems like it's true with most technologies that develop is that they at least at the start, start off a bit ahead of us. Yeah. And hopefully we catch up to them and know how to use them correctly. (laughs) I've seen guys selling the great white ice they brought here that really, I thought they were lucky to get home. Mm. Uh, I don't go out very often, but I usually, I usually go with somebody I roped up, you know, I'm a little chicken, but you know, I did the first ascent of that. Mm. And I, and I see these guys go by and they got their hot new gear and they can tell them sport very long and you tell her techniques not developed and they're not real tough. They're kicking ice on everybody and they potentially could fall off and stab people. I mean, oof, scares me. Yeah. So there's a certain getting ahead with technology that backfires. Sure. Sure. Uh, and last two questions here. Um, one, um, are there particular figures in the climbing community nowadays that you think are pushing the envelope and doing positive things for the community? Well, I mean, in the, in the equipment sense, of my good friend Peter Metcalf no. out there in the, in the climbing, you know I mean, in terms of climbers, right? Uh, I think Conrad Anchor is, if I had to have an eye these days, Conrad is my old friend. He was an engineer out here for Black Diamond. I did some skiing and climbing with him in the old days. Uh, he took over Alex Lowe's traditions and even Mary Alex's uh, widow. Mm-hmm. And has uh, raised Alex's kids with tremendous love and affection. Um, he gets around the world. He's on the North Face Expedition team, and he writes beautifully. And so I really admire Conrad. Um, I'm not as tuned into the great local climbers we've got going right now. I uh, couldn't even pick one out to tell you. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a bunch of them that are highly developed, highly skilled, highly aesthetic about the mountains. Utah's a great place to breed and train mountaineers. We may not have the biggest challenges here, but we can get you ready for them right here in this, on this ground. And maybe a little bit light on the ice, but we can, most everything else, we can do that. Um, nationally, I look at a young athlete, well, I think maybe she's not on the bane of her career right now, I mean on the escalation of her career right now is Lynn Hill, who kind of, kind of proved to the guys <laughs> that women ought to be respected. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the fact she's got small fingers and got the first spring ascent of El Cap. Mm-hmm. So many guys have tried it. Uh, I actually interviewed Nancy Fagan a couple of weeks ago, oh, who, who was a close partner. With, I know Nancy. Yeah. Really. Yeah. yeah. Nancy's one of my heroes. Mm-hmm. I love Nancy. She's a beautiful young woman. She flirts with me and makes an old guy feel good. Uh, you know, the old classic people, uh, Royal Robbins was a friend and a total idol of mine. Uh, Yvonne, in a certain different way, I always liked Yvonne more for his creativeness, his ability to put together his company and now to make it worldwide, make Patagonia one of the great, uh, and his, when he has Chenard equipment, which came Black Diamond. Mm-hmm. 
the great technician, the great, the great innovator, mm-hmm. grumpy old guy. Um, he's done a lot of positive things in, for yeah, the environment. Yeah, if you go sit down and talk to Vaughn, you'd think that the entire climbing world has gone into the drink. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun. You I know, know. I mean, it's the way he looks at things. Uh-huh. But I had the lunch with him up in the Teton last summer, and we sat and laughed. And I said, Mary lived in that cave down there at the climber's campground. It had a sign on it that said, Lazy Ass Man. <laughs> it's filled with old beer cans. <laughs> and his buddy Ken Weeks is with him and in the middle of the summer the army came reminded Ken that he was in the United States Army and he might have to serve a little time at Leavenworth for, <laughs> for taking off <laughs> next summer Ken's back on the climbing campground <laughs> the army comes and arrests him took him off for a second hit <laughs> That's the way these guys were. My old uh, buddy Chuck Pratt, uh, who's a cousin of mine actually, lived in California his life. Supposed to be the first 5'10 climber in America. Chuck and Steve Roker, who's a big old U70 climber. Have you ever heard of Steve? Mm-hmm. Steve and Chuck, I meet them in a climbing shop in Salt Lake in about 1964. And I, they look like climbers. So, are you guys climbers? And he said, Yeah. And I said, Yeah, my name's Ted Wilson. He said, Oh, yeah, Roll told us about us. You want to take us climbing? So, Chuck and I have been friends, and Steve and I have been friends ever since. Nice. Chuck died tragically five or six years ago. But um, Steve's still out there, you know, doing stuff. And I don't know. It's just a lifetime of. Uh, <clears throat> Enormously good friendship. Yeah. Well, that's what you kind of answered what my second question was. Like, who are the folks that you still remain in contact with that were some of your core climbing partners and friends from that period? Yeah. You've, you've already, you've already really got I'd say that. there's 200 of them locally. Mm-hmm. Nationally, maybe a collection of 20 that I have deep love and affection for. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's stop there, Ted. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please keep in mind that the views and opinions expressed in this interview are solely those of the oral history participants and do not reflect any views, opinions, or official policy at the University of Utah or the J. Willard Marriott Library. For more information about this podcast, check out the ascentarchive.lib.utah.edu. That's A-S-C-E-N-T-A-R-C-H-I-V-E dot L-I-B utah.edu. The Ascent Archive podcast team includes librarians Tally Casucci and myself, Rachel Whitman. Special thanks to Leah Donaldson for graphic and website design, Brian Elias Hole for music, and thanks to the University of Utah Special Collections and the American West Center. And lastly, the rock climbing community for participating in these interviews and listening. <laughs> <laughs>